what I love is that we are, we're in this fight for time. We, you know, I, I think much less about the other ebook retailers that are out there or whether people are reading on print or reading in digital. I'm, you know, I'm fighting for time for reading relative to all the other things that people could be doing with that time. Hey there, and welcome back to Simbi Foundation's podcast, Impact in the 21st Century, the show that shares stories of positive impact in a world that right now can leave us all feeling a little helpless. Each episode, I speak with incredibly inspiring guests about the positive impact they're making, learning how they discovered their passion, and uncover what they've done to turn vision into action. I also aim to tease out what we can all do to lead more impactful lives, so be sure to stick around. I'm Aaron Friedland, your host of Impact in the 21st Century and founder of Simbi Foundation, a nonprofit organization that collaborates with the UN to build digital, solar-powered classrooms called Brightboxes to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. If you're returning for another episode, thank you for being part of this community and for taking the time out of your day to listen to our podcast. You inspire us to keep sharing these impactful stories. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. And if you enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the awesome guest list we have lined up for you. And a huge thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. I'm on the show today, how the CEO of Kobo Books, Michael Tamblin, changed the publishing industry, and now how him and his team at Kobo Books are keeping us a relevant reading species. Michael, it's so good to connect with you today. Thanks for taking the time to make it happen. Oh, Aaron, thanks so much for having me. So we've had the opportunity to have a few conversations and I'm fortunate to have actually been mentored by you on quite a few occasions. And I've always been blown away by your eloquence and deep knowledge and very excited to start sharing that with the rest of the world through our podcast. So thank you. And Michael, one of the things that- The mentorship seems to have, uh, seems to have had no long-term effects, ill effects, which is, uh, which is great to see. I'm reading less, lazier. Yeah, it's uh... perfect. <laughs> Just want to switch gears real quick. Tell me about Kobo Cologne, and are you wearing it right now? <laughs> so, you mean Kobo Papier, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah, which is was originally conceived of as a. Uh, as an April Fool's joke, except it was actually made. So um, a, a team inside Kobo got together with some uh, uh, some very talented uh, perfumers, and uh, and made a, a a perfume that smells like uh, a used bookstore. And apparently the 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 dominant note, the one that's very important, is lignin which is uh, a volatile organ- organic compound that comes from the, uh, the decay of cellulose, which is of course the dominant you know, ingredient in paper. So that's what you smell when you walk into a library, when you walk into a bookstore is lignin. And uh, so that is the main note of, of Kobo Papier. And, uh, and we made a bunch of it. So we're gonna like give it away as prizes. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna do different stuff with it over time. I have asked for my uh, my bottle and have not received it yet, which I think is, I'm not taking it personally. I think it has more to do with pandemic logistics than anything else, but it's gonna happen. And then I too will smell like a used bookstore. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And I look forward to meeting up in person and smelling you and your used bookstore home or <laughs> 
<laughs> which is funny because I I actually like the new book smell better, which I understand is sort of like ink and glue and a you know and a couple of other things. But they decided that this one was more subtle and 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 more tasteful. So you know, I, I guess you can't please everyone. I was just thinking you could actually put a couple of sprays of that on on COVID devices as they're going out and people can see right? reading a real book. I want to spray it inside all the boxes. <laughs> then you'll like you'll open up your e-reader and you'll have this beautiful, you know, waft of used bookstore, which is what everybody wants when they're buying a new piece of electronics. <laughs> so I find your story just so fascinating, your personal story. Can you tell me more how one goes from a degree in music composition and working as a bookstore clerk to leading Kobo Books? I'd love to understand that process. I I, I don't know. I think I'm one of those uh, those excellent counterexamples to the idea that career planning is important. Um, I uh, I did my first degree in classical music at Wilfrid Laurier University in uh, in Waterloo in Canada and uh, I studied to be a composer and that was uh, such a, a fantastic degree to do in I was writing for string quartets I was writing for orchestras I was helping to run the electronic music studio and um, and so in every way a wonderful degree to do aside from its ability to provide you with the means of earning an income. So then you get out of your degree in classical music. And, um, and I was working in a bookstore, uh, in an amazing bookstore called The Bookshelf in, in Guelph, Ontario. And I had previously worked there in the kitchen. I graduated into the bookstore in the middle of university. And then on the, um, on the other side of graduation was, uh, was trying to figure out the next thing to do was you know, trying to get work as a composer was really not loving um, stacking books and opening boxes and alphabetizing. And it was the late 1990s. And, uh, and I convinced the owner of the store to take it online. And he himself is a guy named Doug Manette, who was um, a, a quite gifted programmer had built his own POS system. Um, and, and he went for it. And at that point, I think Amazon was still in a garage or or just slightly out. And uh, and so we became the first online bookstore in Canada. And uh, and that just became this uh, this game changer for me. I decided to stop composing, and I we were working on this site, and I was sleeping under a desk, and um, a Canadian telco came along, uh, an ISP called Simpatico, who backed us because they were selling internet connectivity and had literally nowhere to send people. And so we yeah, we got investment from that and eventually sold to Indigo, who's, um, who's Canada's largest bookstore, and we became... Um, Indigo's online service. And as as a result of that, or at least partially as a result of that, Canada's maybe the only English market where Amazon doesn't run the table for uh, for book e-commerce. And it's because there was this, uh, this national chain that got into e-commerce early, pushed on it hard, and, um, and trained people to buy books online. 
And so was there, did a couple of other startups after that, uh, did a not-for-profit called BookNet, um, and so spent some time in the world of uh, like federally funded you know, government plus industry not-for-profit, which was its own fascinating world. And at the, uh, after six years of being the, the CEO of BookNet, uh, we were starting to look at this whole question of eBooks and the possibility that eBooks were going to come along and disrupt the, you know, the bricks and mortar e-commerce paper book market. And right at the time that we were digging into that and starting to do some early analysis on it was uh, where my old friend from, from Indigo, Heather Reisman, and her chief technology officer, Mike Serbinas, called up and said, hey, we're looking at taking a run at this. Do you want to, uh, do you want to come on board? And the idea of being able to go through another book industry disruption again, having been present for the e-commerce one was I, just really exciting. And uh, and so that got me to uh, to jump on board. And we were a little startup incubated in the basement of Indigo. And there were a handful of people pulled together around this idea that that a bookstore could disrupt itself, that it didn't have to come from the outside, that it didn't have to be some other company kind of rolling over um, an existing bookseller that you could do it yourself. And we did. And then found out that a lot of other bookselling chains in a lot of other countries needed that same thing. So that accelerated Kobo through uh, through leaving Canada, becoming international, getting into a lot of different countries, and always with that same idea of, hey, we can work with a bookseller who's really good at selling books and make uh, give them everything they need to plug Kobo in and become really good at selling eBooks too. And, uh, and that's where we ended up. I took over as the CEO in 2015, 2016, was president in 2014. And, uh, and I've been running it ever since. It's best job ever. You guys do amazing work. What was it about Kobo in the early days that, that drew you to it? Did, did they have an exciting product roadmap? Was the idea of the first Kobo e-reader exciting? What was it that drew you over? Um, I, as is as is so often the case, it was the people and and the sense that there was this collection of talent that had come together that was capable of doing really great things. Um, the most of the people on the executive team, uh, like myself, had been CEOs before. Like we probably had four like see you know former CEOs around the table as we were figuring out what to do but everybody had figured out what their role was and the team worked really well together we were one of the first to get a reading app into iOS and to you know to kind of start activating smartphones as a as a reading platform we did the same for Android and then even though no one had hardware experience of any kind uh we thought that we should build an e-reader and we should have our own hardware platform. And with only the hubris that comes from not knowing how difficult that is, like charged right into it, like make, made a, you know, <laughs> um, made a lot of, uh, did a lot of learning very, very quickly and still managed to survive the process enough to, um, to not just come out with an e-reader, but 
we repriced the e-reader market. You know, e-readers used to be super, super expensive. We brought one out at 149, which I think was like a hundred dollars less than the you know the nearest one in the market. So all of a sudden, e-readers went from being this kind of niche thing to an affordable thing. Uh, started a price war with uh, our friends in Seattle that continues to this day, and um, and really helped to unlock that first big wave of adoption around um, e-reading that happened around 2010. And uh, and have been then building and growing and innovating from that ever since. But the but it started with this just amazing collection of people who all thought that uh, we could make reading better and we could uh, we could make it interesting. We could make it more fun, and that this could be something that happens with publishers and with booksellers as opposed to. Being something that's done to them, uh, that we could all progress through this, and we could all benefit from it, and we could all come out the other side of it better, as opposed to this being the kind of disruption that leaves, you know, kind of rubble and destruction all around. Understood. And was this a type of thought process that you were looking at the market, you were looking at trends, and you were seeing, for example, books were losing to TV or or it needed to be made more exciting or more engaging? Were, were some of those trends factoring into this thought process? It was It was less that and more that it looked like books were ready for their digital disruption moment. We'd watched music go through the process of moving from, uh, from CD to downloads. We were seeing video starting to go through that process as well. You know, that was, Netflix was really just getting going in 2009, 2010. And it looked like it was going to be book's turn next. Um, so we were, so we were looking at that on one side, that was part of a series of strategic discussions that was going on inside Indigo, which was, Hey, we're a retailer with, uh, with a lot of fixed assets in real estate and a lot of big stores and we're good at e-commerce, but if this new way of consuming books comes along, how are we going to meet that consumer need? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we could see that there would be a lot of great advantages to eBooks. Yeah. They're portable. They're instantaneous to buy there. You can carry your whole library around with you all the time. Like the same, the same way that you kind of go from the giant suitcase full of CDs to suddenly having your, you know, your musical world and your iPod in your pocket ebooks could do that same thing for people. And so they were thinking about it from that perspective. When I was at BookNet, we were running early market analysis on what would happen to the book industry if ebooks started to gain traction as a category. And at the at the point of, you know, maybe 10% transfer from print to digital, you know, kind of 10% of the reading shifts from one category to another, we could see that the whole thing started to wobble a little bit, you know, that you can, you know, you can only make stores so small, you can, you know, some categories really only exist as loss leaders inside, you know, big box retail. And if that all starts to reconfigure, then the industry itself starts to go through a shift. And um, and I thought it'd be really interesting to be there for that. The, the other piece of it for us as we were starting was this sense that that book selling was probably going to be different in an ebook world. It wasn't like there was going to be 
the biggest ebook retailer in Canada and the biggest ebook retailer in the UK, the biggest ebook retailer in France, which is the way that physical retail was, it would there were going to be probably five retailers globally, and um, and those economies of scale are going to allow you to kind of to serve a lot of people across a lot of different markets, and that seemed like something that would be really exciting, and that we thought we could do. So uh, so we went for it. And, and it's you know and against all reason logic or uh, and odds it seemed to work out not only did it work out i mean your first year your team hit it out of the ballpark at least in terms it was of a, a revenue <laughs> it was um we had maybe the strangest most atypical startup experience because i think we we did almost 100 million dollars in revenue in our first year um, mostly powered by um, by e-readers and just the ferocious demand for those, and and because our uh, our founding CEO Mike Serbinas had done a beautiful job of assembling as our first round of investors this coalition of retailers who all wanted what Indigo wanted. So we had lots of places to sell it. Uh, it was just at the beginning of really a craze for uh, for e-readers that time, and the product just flew off the shelves. That you know, we were all scrambling to try and build an organization that was robust enough to serve that demand, uh, but the demand was certainly there, and it was uh, it's a and and remains an amazing success story. The uh, the only challenge was that it very quickly knocked us out of the usual places that you go for funding. You know, VCs want you know businesses that are like <laughs> that are ticking along at a couple of million, but could go to a hundred million later, so they can get in early. So you um, you end up having to look for money in a different way. You have to look for investors in a different way, and that was all. Um, uh, that all took a while to figure out, but we we got there in the end, and uh, and along the way figured out how to ride this this wave of interest that people had in uh, in reading digitally. Right. And when you think about yourself, and, and yeah, I guess when you think about yourself as a reader, what, what's your preference between digital and, and physical? And I guess it's not always one or the other. I um I'm probably in some ways the the perfect Kobo customer or the like I, you know, a, a fairly typical high volume Kobo customer. I read a lot. I have a lot of books going on at the same time. I'm, you know, I maybe have two or three or four books on the go at the same time. And when I leave the house, I never know which one is the one that I'm going to want to sit down and read. So it used to be I would be carrying around a bag of books with me wherever I went. And every time I went on vacation, I would have a suitcase of clothes and a suitcase of books. And that's how we would go to the airport. And so the uh, all of that living on a phone, all of that living on an e-reader was exactly what I wanted. At the same time, I still love books as objects. I, you know, I love them as things in my home. Publishers have gotten better at making beautiful books as the result of ebooks being around in a lot of ways. So my cookbook collection is you know, spread out all over the place. I, you know, I love a good art book. I love, um, I love books that are meant to be 
um, handled and looked at and are beautifully designed as a result. And that's a, that's a great thing too. And it's, I think for almost everybody that we have as customers, that's kind of the case. It's not like you flip a switch and you go from one to the other, you know, paper still lives in your life. Um, but there's certain kinds of reading that become incredibly convenient and easy to do um, in a digital format. And those for me have flipped entirely to digital. Makes sense. And you, you just said something that I wanna to touch on for a moment. So you said the, the e-reading market has placed pressure on publishers to make physical books more attractive and appealing. I've never heard that before. Is that the case? It seems to be. I think if you go into, if you went into a bookstore in 2008 and you go into a bookstore now, you'll see that quality of book design has gone up. Um, the, the attention that book designers are paying to making books into beautiful objects has, has increased. And, and I believe, I don't know if I've ever had a publisher actually confirm this, but I think I have, that, um, that some of this was, hey, if we want to keep the bookstore channel alive, mm -hmm. if we want to have people going into stores, then, then the physical object has to be valuable. Like it can't just be, you know, if you look at the categories that have switched from print to digital versus the ones that haven't, yeah, anything that was just like the, the paper book was a container for the story, you know, mystery, science fiction, fantasy, romance, like all of, you know, crime novels, thrillers, all of those have disproportionately moved from, uh, from print to digital. But if you look at the ones that have very um, robustly stayed in print, cookbooks, design books, decorating, children's books, you know, they've all been ones where, um, where the experience of owning it is a beautiful thing in its own right, as opposed to the book just being a container for the words. And, uh, and that's okay. Like both of those formats should exist. And I just, what I love is that it's, um, that that shift in terms of where and how are we trying to provide value um, is one of the things that means we still get to have a robust physical retail market too. Mm -hmm. Hey, well, thank you because I love the beautiful books that I get to see in the shops. So I, I guess I should thank you and your team for that. <laughs> I don't and think it, we get to take any credit for that aside from maybe maybe adding some pressure. Well, I'm going to give you some credit anyways. But, but okay. one thing that I do actually want to speak to is, so th that would be a positive externality or a positive unintended consequence of this market changing is the fact that all these beautiful books now exist in the physical kind of nature and now we're more incentivized or inclined to grab them. I was chatting with uh, one of my PhD supervisors the other day, who's he's quite a well-known author named Wade Davis, um, also a Nat Geo explorer and just, just an amazing human. And Wade was saying that over the years, he has seen that people are becoming less interested in reading longer books. And as a result, his publicists and publishers are asking him to actually write shorter stories so that his books continue to sell. And the, the unintended kind of negative externality of that in this case is that that then causes this feedback loop where now Wade's writing shorter stories, so people purchase them, 
And it, it has the potential to cyclically move until we are reading very short, very childlike stories in future. And I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that concept and if that's something that you're seeing at all, how you're addressing it. I, I think I would, I would disagree both with the analysis and with the implication, um, but I understand how you get there. So I think, um, first of all, uh, when, when Kobo was first started, we actually had a different name. We were called short covers. And the idea was, hey, people are going to be reading on phones. And so they'll want to read short content articles. They'll want to, they'll want to buy books by the chapter, um, you know, all of this, you know, all of this stuff. And, uh, and we very quickly found out that that was absolutely not the case <laughs> and, you know, and had to do a fast pivot on, whoa, what people really want is to be able to read full-length books in digital. And in our first three years, I think our best-selling books were like in paper, 800 pages, 1,000 pages, 700 pages. And like, remember, we were going through the time of Twilight, Stephen King's Under the Dome, like all, you know, all of the, um, um, uh, all of the, like the Divergent books, that sort of wave of YA titles that came through, all of which were pretty hefty novels from a page count perspective. But what has been the case is that you can sell books differently and you can engage readers differently with different lengths of content. So one of the things that we become really good at is selling serialized fiction. So if something exists in a series, instead of as a single work, we can introduce somebody to the first one. And maybe that introduction's done at a promotional price, or it's done at a different price, or it's like X number of chapters of something for free. And then as someone's reading it, we're really good at putting the next one in front of them and getting them to purchase that one and the next one that comes after that and the next one that comes after that. And so we've, we have, you know, you see more and more authors with not just like three book series, but 10 book series, 20 book series, because the, um, because now the combination of being able to recommend a book well, know when some, someone's getting towards the end of a book and being able to say, hey, here's the, here's the next part of this, uh, has, uh, we've gotten really good at that. So we've seen more, um, more authors, especially of narrative nonfiction, but also genre fiction going, well, like, you know, do I have to write the great American novel and have it be 800 pages. And like that becomes this doorstop that I drop on everyone and, um, and then hope that they finish it or, um, and that's got a certain price to it. Like I can only charge, you know, $15 in digital or, you know, $25, $25 $30 in print. Um, or do I break it up into seven installments, sell each one of them for $5 um, make more as a publisher, make more as an author, engage readers longer, and um, and yet still tell the same story. So, and I think that's the important part is that it's not like the stories get dumbed down as they're getting shorter. It's just that you're breaking up a big thing into smaller things and um, and keeping someone's engagement over time, which is kind of the same way that we're seeing video evolve in a streaming world where it used to be the feature film was the pinnacle of all you know, video expression. And 
producers have figured out, well, no, I can do multiple multi-episode seasons on a canvas that's far bigger than uh, than a feature film could ever provide me. I get to develop characters longer. I get to do more with story. I get to weave things in and out. I get to play with timeline and, um, and I get to do a bigger work. And so that's, I, I think that's probably what um, I'd be interested if we kind of went back and asked him whether, uh, whether that's some of the stuff they're talking about. With with Wade's specific case, they have specifically asked him to write shorter novels. <laughs> <laughs> sure, <laughs> but but in terms of what you're saying, it it makes complete sense, and it's actually so nice to have that uh, to have that side of the story because that will definitely inform a, a future conversation that I have with him. So I have one more question for you on on this end. If you, there, there's a growing trend in the publishing world, or actually not the publishing world, it, it cuts the publishing world out with uh, book summaries like Blinkist as a platform, and people are hungrier to read a 15-minute um, summary, a synopsis of a book, than they are to, to, to read the actual book. And I'd love to get your thoughts on the direction that that, that movement is, is going in, how you feel about it, and uh, if that's something Kobo would ever introduce. It's hard to, it's hard to say. I mean, we, um, uh, we certainly sell summaries alongside selling full-length works of nonfiction. So um, you, can, you can go online and, uh, and get a 15-minute version of you know, the, the kind of best-selling nonfiction book today. And, and so I think that has always been out there to a certain degree. There will always be the person who wants the nuanced, in-depth version of of an author's thoughts, and there will always be the person who says, "Listen, just give me the give me the top line summary because I want to at least know what people are talking about." That's okay. We're fine with both. I do think that one of the things that's also driving that world of summaries is pricing. And so if you look at the difference between the price of fiction and digital and the price of nonfiction and digital, the divergence on a newly released book is pretty extreme sometimes. You know, you've got, you know, it's, you will mostly see, it's, it's very rare to see frontless new release fiction more than sixteen, $17. Nonfiction gets up there really fast, and so some people are just going to go. You know what? I, I I can't afford it. I you know I want to know what's inside there. I'm not willing to take the risk. I'm you know I just want to get the top line results. It'll, let me let me know what they are, which is too bad because we certainly firmly believe that um, that books are where society makes its nuanced arguments that in a world where everything's getting shorter and everything is about you know the the you know the quick slogan shouted the loudest um books are a place where you actually get to unfurl an argument and um and fully explore it so we don't want to we don't want to lose that as a part of of civilized discourse we don't want to lose that as a part of what thinking people do and 
And we don't want the answer to that to be, well, I'll, you know, <laughs> I will, uh, I'll bypass all of that nuance by getting whatever the shortest version of that uh, should be. We, we'd much rather people actually read the books. All right. I, I think we're on the same page. <laughs> it's, it is one of the things that I find mildly concerning that that trend with people just spending a lot more time uh, reading, reading summaries. And I, I think you're spot on that, that pricing and, and inflexibility there is part of the problem, but that's also just a devastating realization. Uh, so we'd love to see that nonfiction category kind of brought down in price if, if you, if that could make a significant change there. I think there's also a bit of, there's a bit of buyer fatigue for a certain category of, of nonfiction book, which you know, would have made a really good magazine article or may have been a really good magazine article and then got inflated into a nonfiction book. So the, uh, you know, the more of those that get published, the more of those that, you know, you really get everything you need out of the first four chapters. Mm -hmm. And then the rest are, okay, I need another nine of these chapters to fill this thing out and turn it into a book. Um, that just encourages people to say, hey, all I really need is the summary. And, uh, and so, well, we want less of that. We want more books that are, you know, robust in their, uh, in their argument and their insight all the way through, uh, because that helps to preserve the form. So I'm a huge fan of, of Kobo's mission to bring the power of reading to your world because we believe in story, because uh, because we believe story shape who we are, and words can enhance and transform the world around us. And I, I think it's such a beautiful well put uh, mission. And I'm wondering, I have two thoughts on this. The first is, does Kobo actively right now work towards doing that in the child category and to engage early and, and younger readers? Um, and, and the second question is, what is Kobo doing to further that in the age of fast paced media and Instagram and Facebook and whatnot? It's funny because the the assumption of of furthering the cause of reading is almost always immediately relocated to children, and uh, and when we looked around and said, okay, where can we actually do the most good right now when it comes to reading? Um, we found that children are very uh, are fairly well served in terms of the number of organizations that are working on literacy, the number of organizations that are working on, uh, on access to books and reading. We do, uh, we do some great partnerships with organizations like First Book to make sure that children develop reading habits early. But then we went to, we went to the other end of the life course and we said, so, uh, so what's happening to reading as, as people get older? And what happens for reading when you're getting towards the end of life? And we thought, oh, okay, that'll like that's a really interesting place. Let's find the organization that's working on that, and uh, and see if we can help them. And then we found out that there wasn't one. Like there is literally <laughs> no organization focused on helping with access to reading for older adults. Zero, and which is fascinating because you get. Um, you know, as people get older as readers, you have this collision of 
economic factors of uh, health and accessibility issues, you know, the ability, you know, reading becomes more difficult. Macular degeneration becomes a factor. The ability to lift and hold things becomes an issue. Mobility is a factor. You can't get to bookstores and libraries anymore. And then, you know, as you go into retirement homes, as you go into long-term care, people are having to let books go, leave, like, leave libraries that they've accumulated behind. Um, and then find themselves in these kind of literary deserts where all you're left with is, you know, the large print books which have been purchased. And if you've ever gone to a large print book, you know, category, you'd better really like Jackie Collins and you know and Tom Clancy because it's not <laughs> it's not pretty. So we started to do work with older adults, and and we're looking particularly at where could ebooks and e-reading help with um with aging populations and preserve the access to reading and that's been just a fascinating field for us to to dive into because not only does it um does it have us putting our designers and our industrial designers um into contact with older adults and getting a sense of what some of those barriers to usability are um, but it then forces us to raise our game across areas of accessibility generally, because if you're serving an older adult population, you have to deal with vision impairment. You have to deal with issues of you know, tactility and physical usability. You, you know, you're looking at readability and legibility. Like All of that just forces to up our game generally as... Um, as designers, as people who are putting products together, and uh, um, and that helps all of our readers. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the place that we've focused our efforts. The and it's not because we don't want children to read; we absolutely do. Um, but we also know that, especially kids' books, children's books are one of the areas with the lowest level of digital penetration, especially young children. And that's because good um, kids' books live primarily in a gift economy. You know, it's not like you know, children go online with their credit card and buy their, uh, buy their own books. Um, it's, and it's not just the transactional piece, it's that parents love giving books to children. Grandparents love giving books to children. They want to have that, um, that physical handover. They love to look around a room and see books lined up on shelves. And you know, as people in the digital reading space, obviously, we love to see them <laughs> reading on the screens as much as we can. But as a as a bookseller, that just hasn't been where we've where we focused our time. But we have been able to find just these incredible gains to be made at the at the other end of the life course. And um and it's made the company better, which is uh, which is probably the best side effect of all. Yeah, that is really beautiful to hear, and you're you're spot on, right? As you're serving an older population that have all of these interesting concerns to be thinking about, and if you can serve that market, and if you can make reading exciting and engaging for them, you end up actually, I'm sure, making a product that works for everyone. Yeah, 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 <laughs> very much so. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to think about that way. So, what excites you most about Kobo's mission right now? What's what's waking you up at five a.m. or or at an early time? <laughs> you know, I what I love is that we are we're in this fight for time. We, you know, I 
I think much less about the other ebook retailers that are out there or whether people are reading on print or reading in digital. I'm, you know, I'm fighting for time for reading relative to all the other things that people could be doing with that time. And we have never, um, oh, I'd say, like, you know, books have coexisted with other media forms before. You know, television was going to get rid of books um, and, and newspapers and magazines and everything else. And mostly that hasn't happened. So people find various media forms are good for different kinds of experiences and then self-select of those experiences that they like. But we've never been in a situation where we have had companies so large who have been able to monetize time so efficiently. And, and so you know, now you have like Manhattan project level utilization of resources focused on how can I get and keep and sell your time? And, and then they really, you know, they really do want to displace other forms of media. You know, it's, you know, the more time that you can be looking at video or somebody else's you know, social media posts uh, or angry voices on, you know, on, on politics online, the more chance somebody has to sell ads, the more chance that somebody has to monetize that attention. And so that really ups the ante for us because then we have to create an experience that on one hand, is useful enough and valuable enough and compelling enough that it can pull you into a place where you can enjoy books while at the same time not not kind of falling prey to the same set of tools and tactics the reason that people read is because it is immersive because it gives you space to explore an, a story or an idea without you know a text alert coming at you from the side or without you getting pinged for likes to tell you, you know, that you're reading the right thing, that the, like, the reading is actually the, um, is the motivating force for it. And if we can do that well, if we can create that oasis by having a beautiful e-reader, by having a distraction-free reading experience, by allowing you to immerse yourself, then we win that time. Um, and yeah, we win it for us, but we, you know, we really win it for reading. And it's why we also do audiobooks. It is to try and extend that time for reading into those times when it's really hard to read. Like you really shouldn't be reading a book while you're driving your car, but you could still be enjoying one. And, uh, and that's why we think audiobooks is important too. So all of this is you know, our way of saying, hey, there is, uh, while you have never ending um, interest in um, in your time being pulled one direction or another. Uh, if you like this thing, if you like this experience, and specifically, if you if you want to find that still point in your day, then we're here for you, and uh, and we want to do that with you. And I think our passion for that comes through in the things that we build. So uh, it tends to attract people who like that kind of thing. What, what I love about your mission and your work is that even if you do it beautifully and you claw back some of that time, humanity is made better off. If you try as hard as you can and 
you you're able to get a few people to read more books, even though they're, they're as you say, their time is being clawed by the top paid engineers at Google and Facebook and everyone else that are trying to, to suck them. Even the the like the the negative implications of your work are still keeping us a reading relevant species. I don't even know if there are negative implications of your work, but the, the point that I'm making is we. I love I love the organization, and I wish that there were more organizations that were striving for this. And uh, it, it's it's deeply inspiring. So thank you for what you're doing on that end. It's it is a, it's the great joy of my life to be able to do it. It is you know, when I look back at like one of the things that I pulled from uh, from music school and you know being a composer and doing some conducting to to what I'm doing now is this, you know, is this sense that you get to show up for work and you have all of these people who have honed their skill and have kind of practiced their craft. And, and we're all trying to do the same thing. We are, we're trying to deliver this experience. And fortunately to a lot of people who really want it, that's the, like, that's the great part is that people show up wanting what we have to sell. And and so in a lot of ways, all we have to do is a really good job of getting out of the way and making an experience that's frictionless and transparent and lets the words come through and, um, and doesn't get in the way of it. And if we, if we do that really well, then, um, then the customer's really happy and we do well as a business too, which I think is the most you can ever ask for. Agreed. You know, with with Elon Musk and Neuralink and and these short form book summaries, but also mostly just on the technological advances that we're that we're seeing, where do you see the future of reading going? And and what is Kobo doing in terms of you know five year planning to be thinking about where the industry and downloading information could be moving? It's funny because I think as we were talking about earlier the. Um, you know, media rarely works on displacement. It mostly, um, it mostly just gives a new palette in which a new set of artists or creators can tell a new kind of story or create a new kind of experience. Um, you know, live performance didn't go away when people figured out how to make film. Um, and orchestras and live music didn't go away when people figured out how to record it. So um, if somebody eventually figures out how to, you know, pump a, you know, a chain of uh, visual and emotional experiences directly into my you know, synapses, um, <laughs> then I don't think that's going to mean, well, I just won't read a book again um, because the, the experience is different and the kinds of things you can do with it is different. And, if we know one thing, it's that you're always going to have incredibly creative people who take what's always a palette limited by a particular medium and then build an incredibly compelling thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's people are still shooting photos in black and white. Like there's a, yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with constraint as a way to focus creativity. And, and books have always lived within that too. Like, you know, we've been able to put color plates in books for like <laughs> for a hundred years or more now. Um, and people are still 
writing stories in black and white ink. And, uh, um, and I don't think anybody's, you know, picking up the latest work by Nobel prize winning novelist and going, you know what, this thing really needs is pictures. Um, it's just, it's a different medium doing different things. So when we look it's, yeah, I'm actually getting to your question. So when we look at like, what is the, what does the future of this mean? It really is. How do you like, what are the different places and ways that you can push and pull that form? And then for us, you know, we're, we're in one of those interesting places because we are, uh, you know, we're a retailer, we're a manufacturer of hardware, we're the kind of the curator and custodian of a reading experience, but we're also kind of a publisher and we acquire work and we produce it too. And so we've got this, this interesting sort of full stack of from creation right through to distribution. And, and so what are the different things you can do with that? And it was kind of like what we were talking uh, about before with uh, um, with your supervisor, Wade Davis, is, okay, we've got this one form of a novel, which is X number of hundred pages, X number of chapters. And, you know, it kind of is the length that it is because it is, you know, because somewhere back in time, they couldn't make book spines any fatter than that. And people wouldn't buy a book that was too bigger than that because it looked scary on the shelf. Um, but, you know, how can serialization be different? How can stories be delivered differently? And not so much, you know, let's turn them into games or let's pack them with animation, but just um, what are the different ways that you can structure a string of words so that you can tell a different kind of story? That's, you know, for the people that we have working at Kobo who come from the publishing world, that's what gets them interested in the morning is, wow, I don't actually have to worry about how we're going to wrap covers around this thing. Or, you know, can I, you know, I can't actually sell a 75 page novel to a, to a bookstore because that's, you know, it vanishes when you put its spine out on the shelf. I can, you know, I can make a hundred episode 75 page <laughs> sort of uh, serial. And, uh, and some people are going to find that really interesting. And we've got a way to, we've got a way to distribute that on the hardware side. It, oh, it's the constant search for the even better, even more, compelling reading experience like how do you make the perfect reading machine mm -hmm. and what's the best way to do that um, from a retail perspective it's how do we get ever better at um, uh, at both that role of curator on one side and creating a bookstore that's really just for you on the other um, how do we get away from this notion that there's kind of a universal bestseller list that everything has to slot into and we make it better and easier to uncover and bring to light those um, those authors that wouldn't otherwise find an audience. Uh, how do we categorize books differently so that you can have more different ways to slice through this collection of millions of titles we have and find things that you wouldn't have otherwise found? So the, the, the to-do list is endless uh, <laughs> while being in the service of this same idea of everyone has a reading life and we want to make them better. So you spend a ton of time thinking about books, working with books. You've got an amazing uh, book list on your website, which we will be linking in, uh, in this episode. 
But what, what are you reading right now? And what are a few books that just come to mind as books that you want friends to, to read as well? Okay, it's always, this is one that I always hope that people are going to give me some warning on. So I've got my books like right in front of me as I do it. Um, I've, because I, uh, I also host a podcast called Kobo and Conversation, it does a great job of, uh, of pushing me towards books that have just come out. I tend not to be like the fastest off the mark when it comes to, to new titles, but this is like, this makes me super current. So uh, I just finished uh, an interview with Malcolm Gladwell on his book, Bomber Mafia, the, um, the group of uh, pilots and leaders and generals who came together with the, the bombing strategy for, for America for the Second World War and all the twists and turns behind that. I just finished a fantastic novel called Detransition Baby by Tori Peters, which is the story of a transsexual woman um, a, a detransitioned transsexual woman who is now a man and a cisgendered woman who are coming together to raise a child. Uh, and that's just, it's like every possible permutation of gender politics, sexual politics you could possibly imagine. Uh, so that <laughs> was, is fantastic. Um, Oh, what else have we got in there? We've, uh, it's, uh, there's so much good stuff, but those are, those are the two most recent ones that are, uh, that are right at the top of the list right now. And, uh, um, and then like a bunch of cookbooks have uh, shown up as a result. Uh, Dishoom, which is the, um, the Indian restaurant in London. Uh, I, I had a desperate need during pandemic lockdown to, uh, to get some Indian food made and that, uh, <laughs> absolutely fit the bill. So a little bit of everything. And, and in terms of books that you feel have shaped you in terms as in terms of who you are now, do any stand out? Um, wow. I don't know. There's a lot. Um, I think if I look at, um, you know, when I was young, I was a I was a science fiction and fantasy guy. Like I was, um, I was churning my way through Arthur C. Clarke, and then um, you know, then Orson Scott Card, and then William Gibson, and then like that, you know, that accelerator into uh, into cyberpunk never stopped. Um, but at the at the same time, I was you know I was studying music. I was reading books by John Cage and Morton Feldman and um, and biographies of Mark Rothko and 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 so there's always been this like high culture, low culture. <laughs> Not that science fiction is low culture, just to be you know just to be clear, but like you know high culture and and kind of. Um, uh, pop and genre all mixed in there together and I've always loved all of it. Uh, there've been some really timely business books that have shown up at just the right moment for me. Um, right when I, uh, when I took over the leadership of, of Kobo, we had to make some, some hard decisions about, um, about how to restructure the company uh, was right when Ben Horowitz's book, the hard thing about hard things came out and those were just the right words at exactly the right time. Um, 
you know, when I'm so there's it's like the the right book has always showed up when I needed it. And and part of that comes from being in a place that has a lot of books around. So being in a bookstore is always really good for that because you've got you're just kind of drinking from the fire hose. Uh working at a site that sells books all the time is really good for that because the you know the books never you know stop coming. I've you know, the you know, the amazing book on uh, artificial intelligence by uh, Janelle Shane called "You Look Like a Thing and I Love You" is uh, um, uh, was was like a just a fantastic introduction to machine learning for me. Uh, um, there's just like there's new amazing stuff all the time. It never stops. <laughs> Michael, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for taking the time to make it happen. <laughs> It's been so great. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you for listening to Impact in the 21st Century, and thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. We're so grateful for your sponsorship, which helps Simbi Foundation further our mission to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. So how do we do this? We collaborate with the UN and incredible partner communities to build solar-powered classrooms called Bright Boxes. You can learn more at simbifoundation.org. If you enjoyed this episode and think a family member, friend, or coworker would also enjoy it, feel free to share. A personal message goes a long way and will allow us to invite more awesome guests to join for the positive impact conversation. But the conversation doesn't end here, and I'd love for you to join the discussion. So please subscribe, leave a review, comment, and let us know what you thought of today's episode, or if there's anyone else you'd like to see on the podcast. In the meantime, wishing you a wonderful, impactful day ahead, and be sure to join for the next episode.